And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I am John McKenzie and I'm joined, as I always am, by my good pal and producer, Mike Zimmerman. Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing well, trying to stay warm here in the US. How are you, John? I'm doing okay. It's chilly over here in the UK, but a place where it won't be chilly this uh, next few weeks is the Ivory Coast, which is where AFCON 2023 is taking place. And we were lucky enough in this episode to have two very special guests on who know pretty much everything there is to know about African football. So we had Alistair Howarth and Maha Mazahi, who are both freelance journalists who cover African football, on to talk all about AFCON 2023. Mike, you've just listened to that conversation. What did you make of it? Well, not only were we getting people excited for the tournament, but I, I think our listeners will learn a lot about African football, the subcultures, and, and why the tournament kind of started as a way to unify the continent. Yeah, and I think what's fantastic about our guests is that they're able to talk about the socio-cultural aspects as well as what's happening on the pitch as well. And there's plenty of excitement to come. Lots of really elite players that are household names in Europe will be competing for the AFCON trophy over the next few months. But as always, I think the best thing for us to do is to jump right into that conversation conversation between Mohamed Mazahi and Alistair Howarth. So I'm very excited for us to be able to talk all about AFCON because AFCON is coming up. It is kicking off on the 13th of January. That's a Saturday. I have two very special guests with me, both of whom will be in Cote d'Ivoire following that tournament and covering it for various outlets. And the conversation that we just had before kicking off has just shown what an interesting background both of these guys have. So I want to kick off with an intro question, which is about why should people be watching this tournament? So let's kick off with you, Alistair Howarth, because you have an interesting background. I saw in your CV when I was doing a bit of research that you describe yourself as Kenyan Scottish, which is a, an interesting combination. So tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up covering African football. Yeah, I uh, thanks so much for, for having me on, first of all, John. It's a real kind of privilege. I feel like having followed the TIFO for quite a while, it feels like I'm kind of getting call up to my the national team that I've kind of been dreaming of playing for for a long time. So thanks so much for having me. But yeah, I, I mean, I don't look like your quintessential African journalist, do I? Um, but uh, my family's originally from the UK, uh, but I was born and raised in Kenya for kind of most of my life. And my parents before that lived in Uganda. So kind of very much in an East African flavor. Um, yeah, it's a fun question. You know, why why should people care about the AFCON? What, what makes it special? Uh, and I guess, I guess for me, there, there's a couple of things is a, it's kind of the diversity of it. Um, I think we see a lot in kind of particularly mainstream European football, kind of a slow kind of homogenization of football, football becoming very similar. I'd say more at club level than at international level. But I think in the AFCON, we still see the kind of different cultures of football that are still existing so much more. You know, one of the best examples I can think of actually isn't here at this AFCON, but, you know, I think of Ethiopia is probably my favorite African team to watch because although they're, although they're a team that traditionally struggles and, you know, hasn't had a lot of pedigree since, you know, the, the 70s and 60s, 
they still are committed to playing football the Ethiopian way, which is, you know, kind of, I would say the precursor to Tiki Taka football, a lot of passing, not physically dominant, you know, and and for me, that's what I love about African football. Yes, we can talk about the amazing uh, kind of color, the fans, the culture, but for me, I think from the footballing side, that's what I love about it is you get this amazing diversity of, of, of kind of football that you get. Uh, And then the other thing I would probably say is, is culturally football is so much more tied to, um, the nation states, nationhood idea of who people are in on the continent than it is in a lot of other places. I think again, particularly Europe, you know, football has played a really big role in the decolonization of of different African countries. I think particularly in North Africa, you know, our other guests could speak far more on that. But you think of some of the biggest clubs in Africa, Al Ahly, you know, Raja, you know, even in Tanzania, you think of Yanga, Young Africans. All of these clubs played really big roles in in decolonizing. And so I think football is so much more important culturally to African nations. And that's why you see the color. That's why you see the passion. So I think for me, those are kind of the big reasons why why I think everyone should be watching AFCON, not for the big players, not for your Manes, not for your Salas, but for the kind of smaller nations who it really does mean the world to. I think I think that's definitely why, why we should all be tuning in. And Mohamed Zahi, you have spent a lot of time in North Africa. You actually have an interesting story as well. You, you come across from the North American continent. Um, tell us a little bit about your experiences of, of following and covering African football. Yeah, so both of my parents are Algerian. I live in Algeria now. So for me, it was sort of a, that trend of reverse immigration that a lot of uh, millennials go through. I just, uh, I think I just followed the trend in a sense. But um, for me, what speaks to me the most about African football is yeah, in general, it's the story. So I don't mean to get too unnecessarily philosophic, but I mean, football only really means anything when it means everything, right? Um, if you see like players that don't really care, that can kill an appetite for a fan, you know, uh, you know, the ones that don't come and clap over the, the stadium going fans at the end of the game, or when you see an empty stadium, because the fans don't care, that can kill a game for me too. Or if you see even even media, when there's no media coverage for, for a specific game, that can that can kill a game for me too. But on the continent, it means everything for to everybody, um, and, and I think some of the some of the reasons why, or what Alistair was picking up on, is that from its very inception, the Africa Cup of Nations was a tournament by and for Africans, and it was a tournament that was uniting Africans. Um, so we have our first edition in, in 1957, and what happens just the year prior is the Suez Crisis, um, and in the Suez Crisis, for those that don't know, the Suez Canal. Uh, is you know this canal that was hugely important in the middle of the 20th century because most of the world's shipping uh, would pass through there. And Egypt, under Gemal Abdel Nasser, uh, 1952, he, he, he has a coup d'etat and he says, we're going to nationalize the Suez Canal. He nationalizes the Suez Canal, is attacked by the UK, France, and Israel for it. They call it the tripartite aggression in Egypt. And this happens just a few months before the first African Cup of Nations. And there's a real question of, are we going to go ahead and play this tournament? And Egypt at the time is one of four nations in CAF. The other three are South Africa, which is immediately excluded because they refused to, to field a, a mixed race team. You have uh, Ethiopia and Sudan. But Egypt is really the only nation that's done anything. They've played in a World Cup. They've played in Summer Olympic Games. So if Egypt's not playing because of this invasion, then we don't really have a tournament, do we? And I think in February 57, Nasser does something that sets the tone for this tournament for until present day. He says, no, we're going to play this tournament, even if we don't have, even if it's not going to be the greatest thing in the world. And if you look over the last decade, we had the Ebola crisis, we had COVID, we had, you know, the Libyan civil war, which displaced this tournament two times. At the end of the day, 
we, we still play this tournament because it means so much to us on, on so many different levels. It unites the continent. Where else are you going to see, you know, me from Algeria, go speak to somebody from Mozambique and, and see them in person and learn about different parts of the continent and the development of infrastructure. It, it really does mean so much to, to everybody here. And that's why I believe that you should watch it. Because when you see the investment that African people have for this tournament, I think it's going to draw you in. Hmm. Now, it's really interesting hearing you talk about the, the, the cultural inferences of, of this tournament. And obviously, the tournament starting out in the 1950s, we've moved a long way from those sort of times now. So, Maho, what would you say is the, 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 the role of football in Africa in the present day? What would you say that African football is now, all those years later? I mean, it's still a vector for change, in a sense. And it's still very much something that defines people. You know, because people care about it so much. So let's, t- let's, let's take a sociological case study. Let's talk about Senegal. Senegal are the defending champions. They won in 2022, even though it was the 2021 Africa Cup of Nations. <laughs> We're still on a one-year delay with the AFCON. Um, Senegal, prior to winning the AFCON, had never won any trophy at any level since independence. Now imagine that. Like, they didn't win... Uh, you know, even like an under-17 AFCON or a beach soccer tournament, nothing. And this is a team that, you know, had a great um, run at the 2002 World Cup. This is a team that's produced very, very talented players. It, it was like uh, the elephant in the room in, on the continent. How come Senegal never, wasn't able to win anything? And they win in 2022. They finally capture that trophy. And it's like the floodgates open. It's under 17, they win. Under 20, they win. The Chan, they win. Beach soccer. I mean, it's it was just like, foot, no, not futsal, but beach soccer, they won. It was like, man, what? Where was all of this? And, and you can't tell me that's not a sociological or a psychological effect on the entire nation. You know, when, when you know, Senegalese, French Senegalese guys, you know, meet up with, you know, French Algerian guys in the, in the banlieue and, and outside of Paris. It's like, hey, you guys haven't won anything. You're not winners, you know, and that, that can affect you for sure. So, so I think football still has that impact where it, it defines nations. It defines peoples. Um, and at the same time, it still is very much a, a thing and a, an exercise that really uh, yeah, it just means so much. I think that's where I'm going to leave it at. That. It just really means so much. That's where I think we're at right now. I don't want to just say that, yeah, it just develops infrastructure, this, 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 this. But it just, mm-hmm. it, I, for me, the most important role it plays is the definition of an identity, a collective identity. Alistair, you, you did mention that one of the reasons why people should watch the tournament isn't because of the big players, but I would, I've just been flicking through the list of the squads and the players that are in there and just incredible how many of those players now are household names across uh, mainland Europe. Um, would you say that, that the, the sort of professionalization that's happened in Europe has, has actually had a knock-on effect on African football per the sport? Where would you say African football is at in terms of the the wider professional game in the world right now? I think that's a really interesting question. I think that there has, obviously the European football has massively impacted the African game in terms of, you know, mainly personnel. Obviously we've seen this kind of traditionally in the old days, you know, we we would have seen players playing for countries that they were born in, but it would have been, you know, players playing for the country that colonized them. You know, we think of Eusebio, we think of Jus Fontaine, you know, we, 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 we think of some of these players who've been born in Africa and played in Europe, but we're seeing that kind of reversing slowly. Whereas suddenly now we've, you're getting loads of French-born players playing for Africa, for for African nations, and and you know you get a huge variety. Obviously, there's the ones that you know there's the somewhat I guess obvious critique is you know you couldn't get into the French squad, and so you decided to play for X Y Z. But I think then there's also really interesting players like Yoan Wisa who 
you know, plays for DRC, but even for him growing up in France, he always wanted to play for, for, for DRC. I was speaking to him the other day and he said, even when I was kind of 14, I'd already decided if I made it as a professional, I didn't want to play for France. I wanted to play for Congo. And I think in a, what, one of the things I love about African football is be, there's so many variables to it. There's so many variables to the AFCON. You know, we don't have, it's not a controlled, sanitized kind of environment. And so it makes it more complicated. And because of that, there's there's so many different ways to skin a cat. And I think even when you look at the teams that are coming into this AFCON, you have this wonderful blend where you have some of these nations are kind of really domestically dominant in terms of their their player base. So you look at South Africa, almost the entire team is, is PSL-based players, and they've rejected a lot of the players who play in North America or Europe. You know, and then you see some others that are like Morocco, where they, you know, they've been able to do this brilliant blend of bringing in, you know, French-born Moroccans, Dutch-born Moroccans, players who are born and playing in Morocco, you know, in the Batola Pro, and blending this amazing team. And then you have other teams like Equatorial Guinea, where it's like the entire team is you know, almost is players born in Spain who play in the lower divisions of Spain, who don't have, you know, very middling careers, but when they come together, they become this brilliant, cohesive team that consistently outperforms where they should be this tiny tiny nation and i you know i think it's best summed up in emilio and sue who you know most of us in the uk will know him as kind of a very average right back at middlesbrough and a few other places and at the moment he plays as a defender for intercity um, cf in i think the third division of spain but when he rocks up for equatorial guinea suddenly he's their captain he's their center forward and he's banging in the goals. I think he scored both goals in their World Cup qualifiers recently in two one nil wins. And so I think for me, that's what I love about it. Is there's different ways of skinning a cat. Whereas then you have a team like Senegal, almost their entire team is players based in Europe and now based in Saudi. All of the, they have that huge kind of European influence in the way they play. And that's for me what I think is brilliant because then you then look at who's the most successful AFCON team in history. Oh, it's the Egyptian team of the late 2000s. And that team is almost entirely based in Egypt. It's entirely based, you know, really built out of a core of Alakli players. And so for me, that's what I love about the Akron is there's so many different ways for teams to find success. There's not a kind of one path to becoming a, a, a good team. Maya, I'd like to talk a little bit about the geographic aspect here because I, I'm hyper aware of the fact that when we Europeans talk about Africa, we sort of throw it under the band of, a, of the whole continent. We just talk about African football. But obviously, it's a, it's a huge continent with a huge amount of, uh, of diverse subcultures. What impact do you think that that has on, on AFCON? Because I think Alistair, we're already hearing him talk about the fact that you have that diversity there. And this is a really nice way of, of bringing together all of those cultures. What does that represent when it actually comes to the AFCON tournament? What, are the, what's the, what does that diversity look like in, in tournament form? Yeah, just to give you some references. So I'm, I'm in Algiers right now. Uh, I'm actually closer to you, uh, John. Uh, I'm assuming you're in London, closer to you than the furthest southern mm -hmm. city in Algeria. That's how big Algeria is. Um, Algiers is closer to, I just read this, to Moscow than it is to Abidjan, where I'm going to be going for the African Cup of Nations. The continent is absolutely massive. Um, and initially that had one effect where, you know, at this tournament, 33% of hosts have won this, have won the actual tournament. And, and so because travel is so difficult, because uh, you know, the, the, the climate is so different in different subregions of, of this continent. Um, so, so really, it lent itself to a, a favorable factor for uh, many hosts. Uh, but actually, a host hasn't won now since, uh, I believe, Egypt in 2006. So that's obviously changing now as, you know, things are becoming more standardized and, you know, infrastructure is becoming uh, more universal. Um, 
I think what it does from, from there's a few different things it does sociologically. I think, as I told you before, where else is, where else am I going to, as an Algerian, going to meet somebody from Mozambique? It does that. It forces, you know, um, everybody to, to sort of meet in one place. And, and for that reason, I think an atmosphere at an AFCON is like un, unlike any other, um, in, really a continental competition or world competition uh, in, in football. Um, you know, I was, I was living in Marseille for almost two years prior to, to moving back to Algiers two months ago. And I would go to the match, the, the Velodrome, you know, and watch Olympique de Marseille in the Champions League, watch them against Spurs and Sporting Lisbon. And I would be in the press room and there would be, it would be halftime and people would be getting drinks and coffee and, and there would be clicks. There would be like, you know, like four or five journalists, like in a circle over here, four or five over here, four or five over here. And it's just like people talking, you know, talking to their friends and, but it wasn't, there wasn't no, no real exchange. I don't know. It was hard for me to like, but at an AFCON, like, especially in the press room, Hey, how you doing? It's good to see you. I haven't seen you for the last two years. How's the kids? How's the family? It's way more jovial, way more intimate. People also are forced to share information because maybe again, I can't read Portuguese. I need to rely on that Mozambican journalist or that Angolan journalist to tell me, Hey, who's, who's good in this probable 11, you know, what's the coach like? Uh, So there's, uh, there's WhatsApp groups now with, you know, uh, federation presidents, journalists, players, like <laughs> there's real, a, a lot of sharing, a lot of uh, unity. And I think that translates even then when we go to tournaments like the World Cup um, and you see like the entire continent supporting African teams. Do other continents do that? I don't, I don't see like, you know, uh, England supporting Netherlands because they're European, but like on the African continent, that does happen. Like we've, from the very beginning, it was very, very much understood that football is, uh, you know, a tool of uni- unification, and and there's different reasons why, but like again, the the colonial history of the continent plays a big role in that as well, and, and the fact that football was used to uh, unify the turn unify the continent, things like getting rid of apartheid, but also things like boycotting the '66 World Cup because you know Africa didn't have a guaranteed place in the World Cup, that made it that really brought the continent together, and and you still get that atmosphere in Afcons these days, and that's what I love about it so much. Well, I think that's really set the the tone for for what we are going to go on to talk about because we're going to start focusing now on uh, the upcoming AFCON tournament, which is called AFCON 2023, even though it's happening in 2024. So, um, Maha, you already alluded to that last time around. It's because there's a lag and and they've just decided to keep the dates. Is that why? Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. (laughs) I don't know how long we're going to keep doing it for, though, but I wouldn't mind if it just stays like this forever just to confuse people. I think it's funny. (laughs) Yeah, so it is happening in January 2024. So if you are getting confused because it says AFCON 2023, you're not a year out of date. Uh, You're simply watching the, the correct tournament. But let's talk about the... Uh, the the tournament itself because it's been playing as I've mentioned already in Cote d'Ivoire and I'm interested we've already just talked about the the geographic aspect of of AFCON and and African football in general but Alistair what impact will the tournament being played in Cote d'Ivoire have on the tournament itself? Uh, I think the biggest factor and I think which will make this tournament kind of unique and make it special is this for me is it's it's the it's the tournament that is the home tournament because, you know, you think about where Cote d'Ivoire is in West Africa, football, you know, in Africa has been dominated by West and North Africa. And you think four of five uh, of, of Cote d'Ivoire's five neighbors are all coming to the AFCON. And you think every single country from Mauritania, Senegal, Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, Gambia, all the way to Nigeria, all of these countries 
it's very accessible to get to get to Cote d'Ivoire. A lot of them have a lot of cultural sharing. You know, even I was speaking to a Burkinabe uh, journalist the other day, and he's already in Cote d'Ivoire because he's with his family. Because you know, Burkinabes and, and, and people in Cote d'Ivoire they've been mixing for centuries, long before you know these nations were drawn and the lines were drawn in the way in which we see them now. So I think for me, that's what's going to make this tournament so interesting. Because one of the criticisms you could say of of African nations, because of the lack of infrastructure in a lot of Africa, and because of the lack of you know the expense of traveling, is remarkably expensive to get you know even sometimes just to hop across a country. This accessibility is really, really rare. And I don't think we've really seen it since maybe 2008 in Ghana. You know, I think Cameroon is, you know, a country that isn't really close to many others in terms of footballing countries and it's in Central Africa. And even some of the big Central African countries like Congo, DRC didn't qualify for it. Egypt obviously is is very different and, you know, very far off in, in kind of the nor- northeastern corner of Africa. So I think for me, that's what's going to make this tournament really interesting is you've already got thousands and thousands of Senegalese people, Burkinabes, Ghanaians, Nigerians, all already living there, let alone making the trip. And we know then a lot of those other countries, you know, I'm sure Maher can speak on it kind of from North Africa, they'll be sending people anyway, there'll be thousands coming. So I think for me, I, I think that's the thing I'm most excited about is one critique of AFCONs has been that when the home team isn't playing, when the host nation isn't playing, or if they get knocked out early, that the atmosphere can die down a bit. And, you know, obviously if Cote d'Ivoire get knocked out in the group stages, it will hit the, the kind of atmosphere of the tournament. But because there are so many tur- teams here that it feels like a home tournament for them, I think that it's going to be packed. I think the atmosphere is going to be brilliant. And I think it's going to be really special in that sense. I um, I do not know enough about African football to, to my chagrin. So I've been trying to find out a lot more about it recently. One of the uh, unwritten rules, it seems, of, of, of African football is that North African teams struggle uh, south of the Sahara. Um Ma, is, is, is that true? And, and how do you think that will impact some of the, the North African teams faring in this tournament? It's particularly true for the Maghreb region. So when I say the Maghreb, I mean Morocco, uh, Algeria, Tunisia. That's the small Maghreb. Then the big Maghreb, you can add in Mauritania and Libya. And, you know, so, um, so the northwestern part of the continent, really. Um, it's not really the case for Egypt. And I think the reason why is because Egypt, uh, they have... Their strength, as, as Alistair mentioned before, is their domestic league. It's Al Ahli and Zemedic, those two huge Cairo clubs, you know. And those Cairo clubs, when they play the Champions League, when they play now things like the African Football League, uh, they travel across the continent. They play on those pitches. They, they, they're they used to that travel and that wear and that tear. Whereas the Maghreb, you know, we have huge diasporas in Europe. We have, you know, there's four million Algerians in France, a similar number of uh, of Moroccans, you know, in places like Belgium and Holland and and a big number in France as well and in Spain. Um, Tunisians are in Italy. So, so what happens is a lot of our national teams now have started to rely on the diaspora. And, and a player like for, I, I was talking to my, I went for a, a doctor's visit today. I was talking to my doctor and we we're talking about Hussam Awar, the, the midfielder from Roma, uh, previously at Olympique de Lyon, once uh, perennially linked to Arsenal, I believe. Um, and he was saying, yeah, he's a good player. He's, he's okay. He's technical. He's, he's quite good. He's not an African player. You can't take him to go play in Africa. He's, he's too technical. You know, that's what, that's what he was telling me. Like, like, you need intensity. You need drive. You need to be able to deal with the conditions when they aren't perfect. There's a mental fortitude that comes with that. And, and I think what ha- happened with those teams from the Maghreb is that at times they can be over-reliant on players that have played their entire footballing careers on perfectly manicured pitches. And I think that can be... Uh, something that's you know um, detrimental when they, when they do have to travel 
in some countries, I'm not going to say all countries of the Sahara have horrible infrastructure because that's not true. But I think that that was like, uh, I think a general rule, a general explanation of why perhaps some teams in the Maghreb haven't been as successful uh, south, of, south of the Sahara. And, and it's funny if, if I could just come in there, John, because I had almost the exact conversation verbatim with Rani Jaidi, who's, you know, former Bolton legend and kind of center back for Tunisia, most cap player, won the AFCON in 2004, you know, real African legend. And he was saying the exact same thing when I, because he, you know, when he played at the AFCON in 2004 and, and the bulk of that Tunisian team was was locally based, you know, he played for a brilliant Esperance team uh, that, that, you know, did wonders in the Champions League. And he was saying the exact same thing because I was asking him, you know, what do you think about Tunisia now turning towards a lot of their kind of European born players? And he was saying, I think it's great if they're, if they're Tunisian, they're Tunisian. And, you know, there's, there's no reason why they shouldn't play for Tunisia. But before they can compete with Tunisia, they have to have experience playing on the continent, even if that's for the national team. And you can't just throw them into the, into the team. They have to be getting that experience. And whether it's from club football or international football, that experience has to be there. At, at, at first, I throw that in there just because I think it's hilarious that you have your doctors in, in Algeria having the exact same conversation that an elite level <laughs> footballer from Tunisia and coach in Belgium is, is also speaking about. So I think I think you just think that's brilliant. Let's talk a little bit about the format of the of the tournament. So we have six groups of four teams each. So that's twenty four teams in total. The top in each group, uh, sorry, the top two in each group goes through. So that's twelve teams, and then four of the best third place teams go through, making a total of sixteen. That's obviously a, a nice round number for a knockout. So you then have knockouts through to the final. So um, yeah, Alistair, I'll go to you on this one. How do you, we, we feel about the format of the group stages? Because basically, if you finish in the top three in any group, there's a good chance that you could go through to the knockout stages how do you think that impacts the the tournament yeah i have i really mixed feelings with it because i think i think 24 in terms of the number of nations being represented at the tournament is really the sweet spot particularly on the african continent i think less so last tournament when some teams like you know i think especially drc didn't qualify south africa didn't qualify i feel like this tournament every team that should have qualified should have and we're going to get a real kind of party atmosphere when we get to the actual t uh, tournament but yeah, I do think it is semi-problematic. You know, I think we've got, we have that perfect formula in terms of the, the groups of four, the two teams going through. I think that is, for me, the, the perfect way football should be playing. And obviously we're going to have a similar kind of change at the World Cup and the next World Cup. And yeah, I, I'm skeptical on that as well. But I think in term, I think it works slightly better in an African context than it does in other ones, because I think the, the African football is so much more competitive than we say see in Europe in terms of from the big the top teams to the lowest teams. I mean, we, we saw it at the last tournament, Gambia qualified as the lowest team to ever qualify for the tournament. I think they were like 144th or something in the world or 54th, something ludicrously small. And they topped a group with, with Mali and Tunisia, you know, and Mali and Tunisia perennially teams that are expected to get to the quarterfinals, semifinals, final. So I think in that sense, it, it does work by allowing some of the smaller teams to come in because there is that competitiveness but in terms of a, a tournament format, yeah, I'm, I'm not I'm not the biggest fan. Um, but I also don't have a, a different solution to it because I actually think it's really good that they've expanded it to 24 teams. It's worth noting for our listeners, uh, for an European audience, uh, the kickoff times are very favourable. So in the group stages, it's 2 p.m., 5 p.m., 8 p.m. Um, during during that period, and then 5 p.m. and 8 p.m. for most of the knockout stages, largely speaking. Do not quote me on that because there may be differences, and I don't want you to blame me if you end up watching missing a game because of, of timings. But uh, the the point here being that if you are a European uh, watching who likes watching football, then Afcon is uh, fa very favourable in terms of. Uh, 
uh, availability of games and, and the timings of that. So let's talk a little bit about the, the groups. I've mentioned the six groups. Maha, which group in particular are you looking forward to seeing play out? Yeah, um, hmm, there, there's a few different ones that I, that I quite like. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing Senegal, Cameroon, Guinea, and the Gambia uh, play in Group C. I think that's one of those that is interesting for a few different reasons. Number one, Senegal, I think, is between generations. You sort of have the the, the, the spine of that golden generation, the Khalidou Koulibaly, Idrissa Ganagé, Sadio Mane, Edouard Mendy. It kind of feels like they're slightly getting over the hill now, and m- many have made you know moves to, to Saudi Arabia. And I'm not sure that they're as good as they once were, but at the same time, you have this exciting crop of youngsters coming in, players like Pat Matarsar, uh, who picked up uh, an injury, I think, with Spurs, but I think will be fit for, for this tournament. Lamine Kamara is, might be his midfield partner who's playing for Mets. He's been one of the most, he's CAF Young Player of the Year uh, at the CAF Awards. Um, so, so you do have like a lot of exciting young players, players like Iliman Ndi, who was, at, I believe, at Sheffield United, is currently at Marseille. Um, and and I, I'm curious to see how they navigate that transition. Cameroon, in my opinion, un- unfortunately, Brian Mbuemo has been injured, and I think he was going to be central to, to them having success in Cote d'Ivoire but man they, they have a lot of proven players Vincent Abubakar is a proven player at the AFCON Carl Toko Ekambi is a proven player uh, and they Cameroon is Cameroon they, there's something about that football heritage that they they managed to play well in AFCONs I just don't trust the coach so much Rico Bersong the, the Cameroonian legend and then even a, a team like Guinea for example um, when you look at like you know their, their strikers and their midfielders Cyril Girassi has come out of nowhere to be you know the, the sensation in the Bundesliga uh, you can pair him with Mohamed Bayo, who's very, very well-respected forward um, in uh, in France over the last two years. And then the midfield three of Amadou Diawara, former uh, Roma Napoli, uh, Iliex Moriba, you know, this Bar- former Barcelona sensation who's, uh, I believe, uh, I'm not sure if he's at Valencia or Leipzig at the moment, but uh, another good midfielder. And then you also have Nabi Keita. Uh, they call him Deco <laughs> in Guinea <laughs> because he's play- plays much more technical with, with his national team than, than he does with Liverpool. Um, so you look at that and you say, wow, they, they have really great midfield and attacking front line. So if, can they put together, you know, a, a somewhat so solid defense and, and go on a run over here? But Guinea, like Mali, are perennial dark horses that never actually materialize and, and do anything. So, But that, that group in particular, I'm curious to see how it all unfolds. Yeah, I think for me, I think that's certainly one of the most exciting groups. For me, the other one is, is the final group, Group F, um, which, which I think is Morocco. Uh, DR Congo, Zambia, and Tanzania. Now I'm, you know, very much invested in it because it's it's got the only teams that are vaguely in in my my neck of the woods. Um, obviously, Kenya, <laughs> Uganda, the likes of Ethiopia didn't qualify this time, so I'm, I'm excited to see Tanzania. But obviously, I, for me, there, there's huge amount of questions around Morocco. I think that they're coming into the tournament, particularly outside of Africa. I think is seen as the big favorites for the simple reason of how well they did the World Cup. Um, but I, 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 and I think we might get into this later when we're talking about favorites, but, you know, their capacity to play on the continent and in the World Cup are two entirely different tournaments. Um, and, and, and as well as I think this is a very different team to the one that played at the last AFCON where they looked really good. And then they came up against this very stubborn Egyptian side that essentially made Morocco play down to Egypt's level. And, and then they ended up getting kind of outdone by Egypt at their own game. Uh, but for me, it's really the three other the three other teams that I think are exciting because we have this really unique situation where we have... DR Congo, Zambia, and Tanzania, which are all three are neighbors with each other. So they all have shared borders and they all have a huge amount of cultural kind of exchange, 
linguistic and change, you know, I, like I speak Swahili and Swahili is mutually intelligible with most languages in DR Congo, Tanzania, and even Zambia, even though those, in those countries, you probably have well over a hundred different languages spoken. The vast majority of them are kind of mutually intelligible food, culture. There's huge amount of movement across those countries. I think particularly in recent years from DR Congo to Tanzania, um, you know, a lot of people fleeing conflict in Eastern DRC. And you even look at some of the players in the Tanzanian team. Kibu Dennis, I think, is was born to Congolese parents who who were um, he was born in a refugee camp in Western Tanzania, and, and now he plays for for the Taifa Stars. Players like that, um, and as well as we've seen on the club side of things, DR Congo has always been seen as one of the big kind of powerhouses of club football, specifically Tipi Mazembe and AS Vita. But those teams have kind of been declining in the last few years, particularly Mazembe. It's quite sad to see. But in their place has risen this kind of really, really exciting. And if there's one kind of league in Africa that you should watch, I think you should all be watching the Tanzanian Premier League. It's one of the most exciting kind of upcoming leagues. And they have this you know, brilliant rivalry between the two Dar es Salaam clubs, Yanga and Simba. And it's kind of spectacular. And it's just fantastic kind of footballing culture. But, you know, Yanga is often referred to as the kind of Congolese Tanzanian team because the team is just filled with, you know, Congolese players. And even some of the guys who are at the Congolese team, you know, at this tournament, I think, you know, you know Baka, um, Fistin Maele, who's probably, the, you know, the best center forward in, in kind of African club football last season with with Yanga and is now at Pyramids in, in, in Egypt. So for me, I think that's what I kind of love is that there's this real big rivalry between Congo, Zambia, Tanzania, this kind of brotherly love slash hatred because, you know, there's, there's so much kind of movement between the countries culturally, you know, linguistically food. Um, so I think for me, that is that is definitely the, the group that I'm most excited about. And it's not even about Morocco, to be fair. Often in these tournaments, people like to talk about a group of death. Do either of you have a suggestion for which one of these groups is the group of death, the one that there's the most riding on? I suppose that is slightly downplayed by the fact that the best third place teams are going to go through, which I guess removes the jeopardy somewhat. But which if let's imagine that only two teams go through, which would you say is the is the closest group in terms of competitiveness? Uh, that's a different question. I think the closest team in terms of competitiveness could be for me Group E between Tunisia, Mali, South Africa, and Namibia. Those are all teams that, um, first of all, Tunisia and Mali, the, the poor countries, they always draw each other. They drew each other with World Cup qualifying. They drew each other at the last AFCON. It feels really weird sometimes, but it, it is a bit of deja vu. So, so they're going to be playing each other once again. Um, and, and those are two sides that like to hold on to the ball, uh, like to have really pesky midfields, but they neither of them has... A really established striker. I mean, Mali did, but they're they're not going to be playing at this Afcon. Um, Ibrahima uh, Kone is out with injury. Al Bilal Touré was held by his club. So, um, and, and then you have South Africa, and South Africa is for me another team that likes to hold on to the ball now, but is not going to have any strikers because Lyle Foster is out with uh, with uh, I believe a mental health issues. So, wish him the best. Um, and Lebo Matiba, I believe, is out with injury, but I know he's not going to be with the with the with the with the national team as well. So for me, that's like one of those where I think we might have. I hope to God no, but we might have like five nil nils or six nil nils in that group. <laughs> well, yeah, the, uh, in terms of other groups, I'm not sure about competitive, but I just think on that group is quite funny because, ironically, Namibia, the kind of smallest by far team in there is probably the team with the best center forward and Peter Shalilile who kind of plays at sundowns in South Africa and has probably arguably been the best center forward in in African kind of club football over the last few years I think in terms of group of death I think for me the obvious answer would be would be the group that Maher was talking about group C I think you know with Senegal they're going to come into this tournament as favorites if not you know the favorites one of them 
Guinea have, you know, perennial dark horses, Cameroon, you know, in, in, in Cameroon, I, they have the concept of lehumle, which is kind of what Maher was saying, and forgive my pronunciation of a Basa word, but it's that concept of like, we don't play well until everything is in absolute chaos. You know, we only play well when things are in absolute mess. And I think the best example of that is the 2017 AFCON when, when they won it, when I think eight players declined the call up um, and they were, you know, eight of their best players, including the likes of Joel Matip and players like this. And somehow they then go on this ludicrous run with players like Clinton and G and Basagog and go on and win it, which is just remarkable. So far, I think, yeah, I agree with, with Maher. I don't think this is a very good Cameroon side. I'm not convinced by Rigobert Song. And so they're probably going to go and win it. Um, but then I also <laughs> think of this group, they have the best fourth seeded team. I think Gambia have, have the Gambia have shown that they they can compete with the very best, which is remarkable. Again, when you consider the size of the country, I think it's the smallest um, country on the African kind of landmass. Uh, only only the island nations are smaller than it, and they've done so well under Tom Semphia. I think he's a brilliant coach, and they and again they they have this weird thing where they're a kind of defensively really solid team, but unlike a lot of other traditionally kind of defensive teams in Africa, they don't play massively on the break. Um, and I think the best example of that is their goal in the last AFCOM against Guinea, I think when they knocked them out in the round of was the round of 16, when I think despite having like only a fraction of the percentage that Guinea, Guinea had, the goal they scored had 16 passes in the build up to it. So they do have this kind of blend of being very defensively solid whilst also being quite tidy on the ball. And then up front, they have Ablai Jallo, who is not, you know, he kind of fits into the, I guess, the Fabio Quagliarera kind of mold where he, he's not a great scorer of goals but he's a scorer of great goals you know he scores fantastic strikes from the edge of the area he's he scored a, a couple at the last afcon so i think for me that group is one that there might be an upset i, I you know i i don't think gambia are going to do as well as they did last tournament but i do think i wouldn't be surprised if they kind of really did a, did a number over guinea or, or cameroon in particular this episode is brought to you by Michelob ultra the official beer sponsor of the nba want to get closer to the game than ever before Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Let's talk a little bit about the favourites then. 
Um, both of you have been putting out incredible content in the run-up to this tournament. Alistair on, on the Whistle podcast and Maha on African Five-A-Side podcast. Um, and Maha, on your um, AFCON preview, you did an early AFCON pre- preview, you kicked off by saying that you think the current holders and the tournament hosts have to go into the competition as favourites. So that's Senegal as holders and Cote d'Ivoire obviously as the, as the hosts. Alistair, do you agree that these two teams should be amongst the favourites? They, they're definitely amongst the favourites. Um, I think I think Maher touched on it before, where I think with this Senegal team, it's a couple years too late and a couple years too early in, in terms that I think they've had, and we talk about this loads in international football. Football's all about cycles, right? Particularly at international level. It's all about, you know, it's not about having the best players. It's not about having the most talented players. It's about having a core group of players that you trust building that team for a number of years and then they peak and Senegal peaked brilliantly at the 2021 AFCON. They did it so well. And then now we have this, but I think there's been a couple setbacks in that transition. And I think the biggest one essentially is you can put it down to Marseille's fault because both Iliman and Jai and Ismail Assar have really, really struggled since moving to Marseille, particularly in Jai, I think was kind of seen as the heir to Mane's throne, kind of that creative 10, who's not necessarily like a kind of slow player with brilliant vision, but you know, kind of can turn on a dime is really quick, but that's not, you know, he's not looking to run in behind like Sar. Um, so I think with those two and and as well as Nicholas Jackson, who's obviously had a really mixed start to life in the Premier League, obviously is kind of the butt of many jokes, but it's still kind of put in quite a few goals for Chelsea. It For them, those three in particular, and I would throw Lamine Kamara as well, who I think is going to be their most important player in midfield going forward. It's just a fraction too early for them. Um, So I think with Senegal, it's not the same team that won it at the last AFCON. It's not the same kind of solid team that kind of can grind out results. With Cote d'Ivoire, I think they have a brilliant midfield. I think they have a brilliant kind of options going forward. I think they're a really complete team. Um, I think they, they have some, I think because they have a couple of players who've moved to Saudi and are a bit under the radar, we don't appreciate how good someone like Seko Fofana is, who's, you know, fantastic at Lons last season and, you know, decided to make that move to Saudi Arabia rather than staying and playing in the Champions League this season. And then obviously they've got firepower going forward. Sebastian Allaire, you know, even Karim Konate, you know, could be the one who breaks out of this tournament. I think he's at Salzburg right now, but has been a brilliant, brilliant player, was formerly at Asak Mimosa kind of. Uh, of of the Yaya and, and Kolotori ilk and among other kind of Ivorian legends. But again, for me, they, there are things they're missing. And the biggest thing for me is a goalkeeper. They don't have a top goalkeeper. When I think of all the other big nations that go deep into these kind of tournaments, I think, you know, Senegal, Edouard Mendy, you know, for all his faults is kind of playing out the back distribution. He's an excellent shot stopper. He's an excellent goalkeeper. Yassin Buno in Morocco, same thing. You know, you, you look at Egypt, you know, El Shanawi has probably been the most consistent African goalkeeper over the last 15 years. And it's fantastic for me, Senegal. I, I think Ivory Coast most capped goalkeeper is Badr Ali Sangare, who I think plays for Sekakune, which is kind of middling table, uh, mid middle ta- table um, PSL team in the, in the Premier Soccer League in South Africa. Yeah. Yeah. Fofana has kind of come in, and it looks like he's probably going to be the number one, but he's only got a handful of caps playing in the second division uh, in, in Ligue 2, I think, Angers. So I think for me, that is the biggest hole in this Ivorian team. So I think for me, yes, Senegal and Ivory Coast are, are, are in the conversation, but for me, you have to throw in Morocco and Egypt as well. They, they, are, they are the two other big hitters. And for me, it's really hard for me to call it between those four. But I think they are really in, in that t- kind of top tier. Maha, I'll give you the chance to follow up on that, but 
a, another perhaps controversial opinion that you had on your on your uh, preview was that you don't think Morocco is favourites as most people think. And Alistair has suggested that he agrees with that. But talk us through why you think Morocco are maybe not as good as people think going into this tournament. First of all, what they did at the World Cup was incredible. And they really deserve to be commended for that. And they, they really uplifted the entire continent and were all super, super happy when they went made it to the semifinals. Um, I think they deserve a lot of credit and I think their coach is amazing. However, Morocco at the World Cup in a very difficult group, you know, and they were playing a certain way. They were, I'm not going to say it was defensive, but they were organized to be sort of a, a reactive team, you know, like a, a team that was going to wait for you to make a mistake, spring forward and make and punish you for that mistake. Um, they were playing this 4-1-4-1, which they, they've still been playing. Um, and even some of the bodies in midfield, a player like Selim Amalah, um, much more of a physical midfielder. Um, Yusuf Nasiri, the striker, he's a great striker, but he can be clumsy in front of goal at times. Well, he's really good at is closing down defenders in possession. He's really good at challenging in the, in the air. I think they were set up to be a really great out-of-possession team. And, and make you pay when they when they do gain possession quickly. Um, and they, they every time at the World Cup, when they had <laughs> less possession of the ball, they would win their match. And when they had more possession of the ball, like in the semifinal against France or in the third place match against Croatia, they would actually lose. Even after the World Cup against Brazil, I believe they had less possession of the ball and they ended up uh, winning a friendly in, in Tangiers, which was, I think, a fantastic, prestigious final. And you want to have friendlies like that that you can win because that goes into the history books. And I just wonder about Morocco now, you know, against that, that group that Alistair was talking about, you know, Zambia, DRC, uh, and Tanzania. They're going to have more possession of the ball in, in that group in every single match. And I just wonder when they monopolize possession, when they're in advanced positions in the pitch, do they have the creativity? Do they have the, a striker with enough goal-scoring goal instinct and prowess to make teams pay? I, I'm not saying it's impossible, and especially in a format like this where, you know, uh, three teams make it to the knockout stages. I do think Morocco has a good chance of making it through, of course, and, and going far in this tournament. But I do wonder about them in possession more than out of possession. Now, there are some suggestions that they're making some changes to accommodate this. For example, the midfielder I was telling you about, Salim Amalah, it's possible that he doesn't start in midfield alongside Nordin Amrabat and Azdin Unahi. It's possible that they use a player like Amin Harit at Marseille, uh, or even maybe Bilal Al-Khannous, a 19-year-old, very, very talented player uh, playing in Belgium at the moment. Uh, that was at the World Cup, but that didn't get to play much. So it seems like Walid Regragi, the coach, is already understanding this and he's making perhaps you know backup plans about having more ball-playing players, more creative players in midfield. Um, but I, I do ask the question. It's not that I, I doubt that they can do it, but I do ask what they're going to look like when they're forced to take the initiative, when they're forced to take the onus and take it to opposing teams that are playing in deep blocks and, and what that's going to look like. So that's my one thing about Morocco that I'm a little bit uncertain about. And the other team that Alistair mentioned as his favorite was yeah. Egypt. Egypt obviously um, made it to the final last time around where they lost to Senegal. And they have a lot of the same players, I believe, in their starting 11. So does that stand them in good stead in this tournament? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Because look, Egypt, people don't realize, but they made it to two out of the last three finals at the African Cup of Nations. And and again, much of that spine is still intact. You have players like Ahmed Hegazi in defense, goalkeeper Mohamed Shinawi, Mohamed Salah, of course, at Liverpool. Uh, players like Trezeguet, these players have, you know, four or five AFCONs under their belt now. And um, 
and, and they, they look the thing with Egypt that I, that I really like is that they're very coherent. They know who their best players are. They know the style of football that they have to play to get to the final again, and they don't try to fight that. You know, so so the problem was in 2017 they had an Argentinian coach Hector Cooper. In 2021 they had the Portuguese uh, Mozambican-born Portuguese coach Carlos Queiroz, and they were playing an ugly brand of football. That was the problem. They were like very much like like Alistair mentioned against Morocco. They were like dragging teams, you know, like into penalty shootouts, and then they had uh, really great research for penalty shootouts that they would rush out to their goalkeeper, and they they would be winning penalty shootout after penalty shootout after penalty shootout, and they would be advancing that way and. Ironically enough, they, they lose in the final to a penalty shootout. And then they're eliminated uh, from the World Cup through a penalty shootout as well. So the point is, um, they know that they have to be scrappy in midfield. They know that they have to feed that front line, that very, very talented front line of players. Uh, Mohamed Salah, as, as you know, uh, obviously a goal scorer. But this year, I think he's also being more creative and he's going to be forced to be more creative for Egypt. Mohamed Mustafa, who plays for Nantes, is going to be their striker. He's a, he's a player, unlike Hussam Awar, that I think is ready for Africa, that can play in Africa. He's much more physical. He takes shots from outside the box. Uh, you know, little bits and bobs and, and, and potholes on the pitch don't really bother him too much. And then on the left wing, Omar Marmouche from Eintracht Frankfurt has been one of the best players in the Bundesliga. Uh, Trezeguet has one of those players that Alistair was talking about that maybe with their club form, you're like, eh. He's an average player at Villa. We saw he didn't do anything. He didn't blow the, the roof off of anything. But with the national team, he always steps up in big moments as well. So they have a very talented front line. The midfield is going to be scrappy. The their defenders know that they're a little slower. Like Hegazi is like, man, oh, the time it takes for him to turn around and 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 oh man, we could we could have a full conversation. We could make ourselves a coffee by the time he turns around and then <laughs> for him to actually catch a, a speedy striker behind him is. But he keeps everything in front of him, and he knows he knows he has to do that. So, so Egypt know what they want to do. And I think that coherence plus the experience plus the proficiency of their front line this season with their club form and with the national team form, they've won uh, 13 matches since the last AFCON, the most out of any other Afri African nation. All of those factors together is why I think I had them as a favorite as well. You've anticipated my next question a little bit, but I'll pose this one to Alistair because, as you said, Egypt have players in their front line who are all playing in Europe right now and playing very well. So, obviously, Mohamed Salah has been central to Liverpool's forward line. And then we've got Mustafa Mohamed playing for Nantes, Omar Mamouche in Frankfurt doing really well at the moment, and then Trezeguet, who's actually at Trabzon Sport at the moment, but who's played a big chunk of his career in Europe. So... I'm interested to hear your thoughts, Alistair, on, on the impact of having players who are, we've already touched on it a little bit, but having players who are playing at the highest level in Europe on your team, is that is that a good thing or is, is it, as has been su suggested, not always the guarantee that you might think it would be? Yeah, I, I think it's the obvious answer is, yeah, if, if you're a good player in Europe, it doesn't translate to being a good player in the AFCON. And, and, you know, I think this is so often, and this is one of the things I love about the AFCON again is, you know, we have to talk about the favorites. We have to talk about the big teams. But it was kind of like I was mentioning with Equatorial Guinea, you know, players who have very middling careers at low level in Europe can become absolute stars in Africa. You know, I think of Yusuf Mjangama, who is Kamor's superstar, you know, their number 10, brilliant player, he scored, scored a goal to knock out Kenya in qualifiers for the AFCON. So I'll never forgive him for that. But he's, and then he scored this brilliant 30 yard free kick against Cameroon in the game where last term where Comores didn't have a goalkeeper, went down to 10 men, you know, seemed to have the world against him. So for, for me, it's you always have to look at the players who perform for the national team, not at their club level. And I, we, there's so many examples across the AFCON. Even you, you look at, you know, teams like Burkina Faso, you know, Blatty Torre, who's playing in Egypt. When you see him in the AFCON, you're thinking, why on earth is this guy not at the Premier League or something? Because he's so good. 
but then you know he's then playing he's then playing his club football Egypt I'm, I'm not not even Al-Akhli or Zamalek or anyone same with Gustavo Sangari there you know like plays so well for Burkina Faso even though he's playing the second division of France so I think like whether or not they're playing in Europe isn't important and I think a great example of that is Omar Marmouche who is you know, like 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 Maher mentioned, has had a brilliant season at Frankfurt. I think he scored a brace in that five-one win against Bayern Munich. He lo- he looks like he's in brilliant form, but he was he him and Mustafa Mohamed, but especially Marmouche, was for me the biggest disappointment of the last Afcon in terms of players. Because for me, he came into the tournament yes, a couple of years younger, but similarly looked really in good shape. Looked like he was going to take the tournament by storm, and he was an absolute kind of sideshow. He didn't do anything. He had a really terrible tournament. Now. I think he's look. He's a more complete player, and as we've said, him getting that experience for Egypt under his belt has made a big difference. And to be honest, I, he's probably not going to play a starting role in this tournament either, with kind of the reemergence of Trezeguet and playing so well for the Pharaohs. So I, I think, yeah, that the honest answer is, you know, you have to take the good players from where they come from. You know, it doesn't matter if they're playing in Europe, doesn't matter if they're playing, you know, in in South Africa or Egypt or Morocco. It's it's the the players who will play well for you but and but i i then think that there are some players that do transcend that and i think mo salah is is one of those just in terms of being absolutely spectacular and being kind of a genuinely world class but i guess the question for me for this egyptian team because i kind of laughed when you said does it make a difference if this is the same team because this is the same team that played at the last afcon but they play completely differently like like maher said this is not carlos kiros hector cooper ball this is much better football <laughs> being played by them but the, the huge problem for me with Egypt last tournament is everything went through Salah. Absolutely everything. You know, they had not a creative bone in their body if it wasn't getting into Mo Salah. And he actually had a really poor tournament. He really struggled to get into games because of that. He was being double man marked every match. And it was kind of a real clear path. Now, I think they've kind of learned from those mistakes. I think players like Zizo, uh, Zizo from Zamelik have come in and have shown a lot more creativity and, and, and kind of taken that burden off Salah. But I think that's going to be a the huge question for Egypt again, because they have a brilliant defense, really organized defense. For me, one of the best center backs in the competition and Mohamed Abdelmanem, who for me was the player of the tournament, the last AFCON, even though he was only 22 at the time, one of the best goalkeepers. But for me, the, the big question with Egypt is, are they going to be over-reliant on Salah again and can they get the best out of him? Hmm. Interesting hearing you talk about Mohamed Salah because I think that the most airtime that AFCON gets in the UK is around the the fact that Mohamed Salah is obviously going to leave and Liverpool doing very well in the league right now, top of the Premier League. That's obviously going to have an impact on their ability to be to be creative. So I thought I'd throw this question to you guys because it must be a frustration for for you guys when you are so enthusiastic about a competition like this that the most airtime they gets is from your in Europe is from people whose clubs are losing some of their best players to this tournament. So Maha, how do you respond to to that sort of uh, issue? To be completely honest, uh, John, like I, I don't care that much. <laughs> Just because I'm, I'm looking forward to the matches so much, I, I don't consume that much European media. And I think that's a general attitude in general. You know, on the continent, it's like okay, mm-hmm. oh boohoo! The BBC wrote an article, another article about you know 50 players in the <laughs> Premier League that are going for the Afcon and what it's going to mean for your club. Yeah, okay. Like we're looking forward to the matches, honestly, and, and the storylines. And we, just a quick note about Salah again. That's a huge storyline, this AFCON. Salah has never won an African Cup of Nations. Yes, he's the player that took Egypt back to the World Cup after 28 years. And that was huge for his legacy. But in Egypt, I mean, when I speak to some Egyptians, they'll say, yeah, Mohamed Salah is the best ever Egyptian player. But he's not the greatest. He never won an AFCON. He never won any trophies for us. 
You know, and they say Muhammad Abu Trika is the greatest. And, and yes, that, believe it or not, that weighs on him. Yes, he's playing at Liverpool. Yes, he's won Champions League. Yes, he's the most famous Arab, you know, athlete. And the, he's, he's on top of the world. That will weigh on him mentally and his legacy. So, so like, I think we sometimes underestimate in Europe the, the heavy toll this takes, you know, on, on some of these superstars um, and, and how they develop and how they, they, they develop through the tournaments, I think, is one of the great storylines. And that's another reason why I like to follow the AFCON. Just one more quick anecdote is I remember in 2017, that was my first AFCON. And uh, I embedded myself with some, uh, some British journalists who were... Uh, think more interested in Premier League players than, than the actual match itself. So Sadio Mane had just signed for Liverpool, I believe. And, uh, and they absolutely wanted to get, you know, a soundbite in the mix zone. And the mix zones, man, those scrums are, are intense. They're feisty. So we're all elbowing and, you know, and trying to get our, our dictaphones and our, our iPhones uh, to, to try and get a soundbite from Mane. Sadio, Sadio, please stop that. He stops. Okay, cool. Sadio, what did you think of the game? We asked him three questions. Great, we got the Sadio Mane soundbite. This is going to be, you know, great for tomorrow's paper. Uh, Senegal are, are looking like a great team in 2017. Get back to the newsroom in the in the media center in the stadium. Plug it. Plug your thing into the computer. Listen, can't hear anything. Turn up the volume all the way. Nothing. And I promise you, the iPhone was not even three centimeters from his lips. He was that shy. He spoke so quietly. He wasn't a player that really like showed any leadership. The next year, he had a little more personality in 2000, at the 2019 AFCON. And then him at the 2021 AFCON, which was played in 2022, by the way, takes that, you know, that winning penalty after missing one in regulation time, takes that winning penalty in the penalty shootout. And he's quite clearly transformed. He metamorpho- metamorphosized, metamorphosed, I don't know how you say it in English. He became, you know, he, <laughs> he, he, he transformed into that, you know, that that leader that the whole nation looks up to. And now he's confident. And when he speaks in the mix zone, you can damn straight, can for sure hear him. So, so like those storylines about seeing like how players like evolve through tournaments. I love that as well. And, and, and I'm really paying attention to Salah uh, for this tournament. We are running out of time. I've got so many more things I wanted to talk to you guys about. It wouldn't be a podcast on African football on TIFO if we didn't talk a little bit about friend of the TIFO podcast, Rulani McQuenna, who is the head coach of Mamelodi Sundowns. Now, Mamelodi Sundowns are one of the informed teams on on the continent in Africa uh, and have been impressing people a lot under McQuenna's uh, managership. The South Africa team has a, a, a load of Mamelodi Sundowns players in its squad, and we've we've mentioned as well before. There's been clubs where teams, sorry, where um, they've had a lot of domestic club players on them. So uh, you think of Egypt and Al Ahly um, in particular. What what um, impact do you think, Alistair, having a, a, a national team that is full of domestic team players? What impact can that have on a a, a country's chances of doing well in Afghan. I think I think specifically with the Sundowns example, I think it's transformed South Africa's kind of kind of entire state of being because South Africa has been footballing wise has been an absolute mess the last kind of decade. You know, the mismanagement, the federations done really badly. Even coming into this tournament, some, a lot of the staff haven't been still haven't been paid their Christmas bonuses or their all their wages from last year. Absolute chaos. You know, Hugo Bruce, the, the the head coach, said that one of the reasons why he didn't take a full twenty seven man squad is because because of the budget. So you know, you think South Africa is one of the richest uh, kind of countries on the continent. They can't even get twenty seven players to go to the Afcon. So there's so much mess around South African football. But the one club that has been and the one point that has been 
anything but that is Mamelodi Sundowns, who have been just been completely dominating South African football for you know decades, mainly because they had they're richer than every other club because they were you know owned by Patrice Motsepe, South African billionaire who's now the the president of CAF. Um, but then what first when Pizzo Massimane comes in and then Rulani Requena, they transform it into this kind of machine that's just dominating, dominating, dominating. And, and you know, you'll know be- better than most now having interviewed Mokwena, you know, how progressive his football is, how much he thinks mm-hmm. about the game. And that translates onto the players, you know, really, really intelligent players. And the, yeah, this core this of, of this team is completely sundowns. You know, you think Ronwen Williams, you know, Zulu Mudao, Modiba, Percy Tao used to play for sundowns, Tempazwane, you know, this is a this is a, a Sundowns team. The biggest issue I have with South Africa's team because I think they play good football. I think coming into the tournament until they lost surprisingly to Rwanda in the World Cup qualifiers, they had the longest unbeaten run of any African team. Uh, I think it was almost fourteen games or something, which is really taking South Africans by surprise. Every time I mention South Africans, they don't believe me because let me tell you, South Africans are very pessimistic about their chances. But for me, the biggest. I think that, so the South African team plays really good football, really solid team. I arguably have the best goalkeeper at the tournament. I think Ronwin Williams is fantastic goalkeeper, both at shot stopping and playing out from the back. But the biggest thing that they miss is Lyle Foster. And for me, that's the only reason why they're not considered a dark horse. They're not an outside chance because they really don't have anyone up front to score the goals. Um, they're missing, you know, Lyle Foster obviously is, is not coming to the tournament. He's been struggling with depression, mental health issues. Um, and so he took some time out of football. He's actually back playing for Burnley, but uh, he and Burnley decided not to to come to the tournament. And I think that's the only issue because South Africa without him, they've got some really interesting attacking players. Percy Tao, uh, I think, was the CAF uh, club football player of the year this this year in in, in uh, playing for Al-Akhli, formerly at Brighton. Really, really talented winger. Tembazwane, kind of very creative 10 can plays between the lines, can play up front, can play on the left. You know, any Sundowns player can play in any position. You, you'll, you'll know that. But they're missing some of their excitement. You know, Lyle Foster up front. You know, it's probably going to be Evidence Makopa who plays up front, you know, Orlando Pirates center forward. But, you know, again, he's being uh, outshone by uh, Dion Hotto, who's Namibian's second choice striker. He's, he's scored more goals than him in, in the PSL in the last three years. And so I think for me, that's the issue with South Africa is they have a really, really strong core of Sandown's players. They're going to play good football. In Hugo Bruce, they have one of the best kind of, I would say, best non-African managers at the tournament. Obviously, he's the last non-African manager to win it, 2017, with that Cameroon team, which, again, he deserves kind of a statue in Cameroon for that achievement. We've spoken about how ridiculous that was. But for me, they're just missing that player up front. They're just missing Lyle Foster uh, and, and the goals up front. But I think, I think they're going to be a really interesting team to watch. I did want us to spend some time talking about the players, but I also wanted us to spend some time talking about Nigeria. But what I'm going to do in a, in a, in a sleight of hand that many podcasters may use, is I'm going to run those two ideas together because Nigeria have one of the most memorable squads, I think, in the tournament. A lot of people talking particularly about that forward line that they can, can put out. So if I run through some of the forwards they have, they have Kalechi Iheanacho at Leicester City, Samuel Chukweze at AC Milan, uh, Adamola Lukman at Atalanta, Victor Osimen, who is the talk of the town with his exploits with Napoli, and Victor Boniface as well, Boniface, I should say, sorry, uh, as well, who is at Bayer Leverkusen, who are, are doing really well in the Bundesliga as well. So lots of lots of exciting talent that is out there. Um, I think the argument with, with Nigeria is going to be that maybe the, they don't have the, the rest of the team to, to back up the, the front line that they have. But let's talk a little bit about um, Nigeria. Let's start with you, Maher, but let, let's also talk about some of the players in particular that we're looking forward to seeing in this tournament as well. 
that are, that are in the same sort of tier as, as some of those names that I've just read out there. Yeah, so Nigeria, for me, the main storyline is Victor Osiman because he missed the previous AFCON. He had played, mm-hmm. I believe, in 2019, but just, I think, a few minutes in the in the consolation match, the third place match uh, in Egypt. So him now as the CAF player of the year, you know, leading Nigeria out, uh, it's going to be something to watch, really. I think all eyes are going to be on him. Um, I think the main problem with Nigeria now is who's going to be supplying him the ball. Are they going to... The coach, Jose Pacero, continues to play a 4-4-2. It kind of feels more like a 4-2-4 to me. It's like split in half horizontally, and there's no real um, cohesion uh, in a sense. Uh, I think what they're going to end up doing is using Kalechi Hinacho, uh maybe on the right wing and have him uh, cut in and, and try to supply because he has a touch more creativity than some of the other target men they have. Um, but that's going to be a, an interesting problem that I'm going to be interested to see if they can resolve. But right now, there's a lot of pessimism around Nigeria too. But I mean, aside from Ozyman, uh you talk about star players at the AFCON. The the, the three sort of uh, shining stars of African football over the last you know seven eight years have always been Riyad Mahrez, Sadio Mane, Mohamed Salah. Those are like, you know, they were some of the best players in the Premier League for a very long time. They're going to be playing again, and I don't think they're over their prime yet. I think they have one more good tournament in them. So we're definitely going to be have to, have to keep an eye out for them. And then I think Alistair touched on it. The Cote d'Ivoire team is littered with so many interesting players. You know, players like Seko Fofana, Ibrahim Sangare, Frank Kessier. Uh, they're defenders. They have like four central halves that are, that are really, really underrated in Europe. Evan Indica from Roma, uh, Songo uh, from Monaco. Uh, I'm blanking on names. Odlan Kasunu from Bayer Leverkusen. Uh, Simon Adingra is obviously not a center half, but but has been playing really well for Brighton. So, I mean, if you like scouting, watch the Cote d'Ivoire team. And, and, and I think you're going to really have a, a field day with a lot of young, underrated players that I think could explode and become players that play in the Champions League in the years to come. Yeah, I, I think there's some of the obvious ones. I think for me, of, of the big, big names that I'm really excited to see is, is Mohamed Kudus. Um, I think he mm-hmm. is made that transition from playing it for you know in Ajax to playing in the Premier League at West Ham and he has shown how brilliant he is and you know I think he has shown that he is just this incredible blend of kind of physical dominance athleticism with an incredible amount of technical quality you know you look some of the touches he plays some of the passes he plays and I look I think this is you know there's a reason we haven't mentioned Ghana at, almost at all in this preview you know I think they're at very low ebb I think there's there, we can't be expecting too much for them but I think if if Ghana is going to make it far in this tournament if they're going to do any it, it will be Kudus it, there is no doubt about it he is so so talented um so I think in terms of in terms of the bigger players I, I think Mohamed Kudus is definitely the one that I'm that I'm most interested interested to see I think for me as as always, I'm more interested in the smaller teams. I'm more interested in in kind of the the, the the smaller side of things. And one of the teams that I think is going to be really interesting is DR Congo. I think one of them or Zambia could make a decent run of it, you know, and I think that game between them is going to be brilliant because both are quite chaotic. Zambia in particular will put five goals past you, but also concede five, you know, defensively really lax, but have a lot of goals in them. But I think for me, looking at this Congolese side, they have, you have Jan Wiesa up front, brilliant player, really suited to the Congolese kind of style of football playing on the break. And I think for me, I really hope that his strike partner is going to be Teo Bongonda, who's kind of known as the Congolese Messi, um, because he's so unbelievably talented, brilliant dribbler, great ball carrier. I think he plays in, he plays in Russia right now, which is why I think he's not been talked about at all. Um, because obviously Russian football is completely off the map in terms of European football. And so he's kind of hopefully for me going to come out of the left wing and just, 
you know, both literally and, and figuratively and, and kind of really take this tournament by storm. So I think for me, Teo Bongonda would be, would be the one that I think would hopefully be a kind of quite a surprise, but could really stand out at this tournament. And Maha, if you wanted to add any lesser known names to, to that list of players you're looking forward to, feel free to. Alistair touched on Karim Konate from Cote d'Ivoire. He's going to be somebody to watch. Um, I, I like the front line of at Zambia, Lamek Banda, um, Fashion Sakala, and Pat Sindaka uh, really, really perform quite well together. They're they're naive when they're defending, but when they attack, they're, they're fun to watch. If you like central midfielders, Mali is your team. Yves Bissouma, obviously, but then you also have Mohamed Kamara at Monaco, I think is, again, another underrated player in Europe. Uh, so, so good. But you also have Diadi Samasaku, Amadou Heidara, you know, I don't know if Abdoulaye Dekoury and Sheikh Dekoury, I think Sheikh Dekoury is injured, but Abdoulaye Dekoury, I don't know if he's been called up. I don't think so. But they have like probably 15 central midfielders that are good enough to play uh, on the continent. So so that's your team if you if you like them. Um, I think, yeah, that's that's about it. Like Senegal, who I think have a young generation of players that are, you know, going to be uh, coming in and and making a new generation. I think Morocco also have that. I think they could also be between generations. Players like Ziyech are a little bit older, Sais in, in defense, um, you know, and and even Amrabat, I think, is starting to age like the end of his footballing career, which is maybe not good news for, for United fans. Um, but I think like players like Amin Adli at Leverkusen, uh, Al Khanous, who we already spoke about, who already spoke about Amir Richardson in, in midfield. Uh, they have a lot of young, talented players at the under twenty three level that I think could make a really nice golden generation. In again, hopefully in time for them, hopefully in time for the two thousand twenty five African Cup of Nations, um, as they're going to be hosting it, and we don't know if it's still going to be played in two thousand twenty five or two thousand twenty six to BC. Well, my intention with this episode was to get people hyped about Afcon. And I am feeling hyped about AFCON, so hopefully uh, the the audience will be feeling the same way. Thank you both so much for coming on. Uh, it's worth saying that AFCON kicks off on Saturday the 13th of January. And if you want to get really good coverage of the competition, I can do nothing more than recommend Maha and Alistair's channels. So Maha has the African Fiverside Football Podcast. Alistair has the On The Whistle Podcast. Um, both of you are in the Ivory Coast in Cote d'Ivoire, so make sure that our listeners do make sure you follow them on Twitter to keep up with the, the news and the and the and uh, all of the fun of AFCON 2023. Um, Mahe is on Twitter at Mazahi Mahe and Alistair is at A. Howarth. That's H-O-W-O-R-T-H 97. Um, thank you again both so much for coming on. It's been great chatting to you. It's really great to have your insight into not just the, the football itself, but the, the culture that gathers around the AFCON tournament as well. Um, have a great time in the tournament and hopefully it's going to be a really good one. Thank you so much, John. Absolutely love being a part of it. Thanks for having us on. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. 
Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.